Good morning. For our responsive reading this morning, we will conclude Psalm 50. Um, so if you would stand, your, I believe it's in the Pew Bible on page 580. We will conclude with verses 12 through 23 of Psalm 50. <clears throat> I will begin with uh, the even number this time. And here we go. Psalm 50, verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your, va- your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. But to the wicked God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes and to take a covenant in your mouth, my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. Oh, I'm sorry. I got all confused here. Um, What are we on? 18 here. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him. And you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil, and your tongue brings deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and take the case of your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you you in pieces and there will be none to deliver he who offers the sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me and to him who owes his right I shall show the salvation of God amen please be seated oh. sorry about that um, as we conclude this this psalm you certainly see the sovereignty of God in all his creation and in all that he does the, the, the verses that really spoke to me is for is the second part of the uh, psalm is in the, to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And in that, we read these as Old Testament statements, and you would think that they would be talking about the, uh, the Old Testament type of sacrifices. And here he, it, God makes reference to the flesh of bulls and the blood of male goats, but what he truly desires is that of the, the broken and contrite heart, the one that is willing to sacrifice themselves to God rather than to keep themselves in their prideful, uh, sinful ways. This, um, this psalm really does seem to speak a great deal of uh, uh, salvation as we would know it through grace rather than um, a a system of appeasement and sacrifices and atonement, but one that offers up a a greater sacrifice, that of uh, God's Son and and ourselves. So, again, it's it's just a beautiful thing to see the Psalms and how relevant they are to our New Covenant understanding and the heart of the psalmist, that he had that as well. Okay. 
Okay, I just want to read that last verse of uh, Psalm 50 one more time. I believe it'll line up with the rest of the details that I'm going to be saying for my time up here. Psalm 50, verse 23. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me, and to him who orders his way aright, or to her, for those of you that are here, uh, who orders her way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. So this morning our question is going to be, as we move into our sermon, is what does it mean to order your way aright? As you see in the bulletin this morning, I've entitled today's message, A Good Conscience, Holiness and Spiritual Discernment. I would say those are the two things. In order to live your life aright, you need to have holiness and spiritual discernment. Both of them are very important to keep maintaining a good conscience. Also, on the back of your bulletin, you'll notice I have some notes for you that you can follow along through the sermon this morning. I must admit, I had a hard time deciding where I wanted to go with the sermon this morning. We've been thinking through the scriptures from Genesis to Leviticus for quite some time now, almost a year. We've been stuck to Genesis and Leviticus, of course, taking some breaks here and there and allowing whatever holiday, holy day, however you look at it, um, to have our attention Things such as Mother's Day, Father's Day, Memorial Day. We did not continue through Genesis to Leviticus, but instead took a pause um, to, again, appreciate what God might be telling us in the moment. The first question I want each of you to think about this morning is, do you understand the storyline from Genesis to Leviticus? I have provided a link in your bulletin this morning that provides a free study course going through Genesis to Leviticus. And it's provided through a group called Our Daily Bread. Many of you are probably familiar with the Daily Bread booklets. I do hope you will utilize that link. And while there will surely be some areas as students of Scripture, you will disagree with some of the details in that course. However, we can find unity in the basic outline, or at least the need to gain one. In Genesis, we read about what's called the Book of Beginnings, right? The word Genesis or Beersheet in the Hebrew means beginning. And the question we must ask as we read through that text from Genesis 1 to Genesis 50 um, is the beginning of what? When we start at Genesis chapter 1, the beginning of what? Of course, I'm not going to get into all the details of the beginning of what this morning. However, I do encourage you to join us in our Wednesday evening Bible study where we're actually examining exactly that. Genesis, the beginning of what? But as we move from Genesis into the book of Exodus, we find a nation is born. And again, these are the titles that the Daily Bread had offered as the outline for this topic. A nation is born through Exodus, through being in bondage in Egypt, and God, through his mighty hand, his mighty outstretched arm, brings Israel out of bondage into the promised land. And this is what we refer to as the Exodus, taking them from one place and bringing them to another place. And then, of course, Exodus flows right into the book of Leviticus. It's, you know, if you were to read the Torah in its fullness, you would see that the, the book of Leviticus is not a new book at all. It actually just flows right from the Exodus. As if God is saying, I brought you from that to this so that you would live this way. Because the book of Leviticus is a book about living God's way. You've been brought some, from somewhere to live somewhere else and to live appropriate where you've been brought to. We are currently in, in our reading, we're in Leviticus chapters 19 and 20. And in the the Jewish reading, the rabbinical readings, this is what is referred to as Parshat Kedoshim, Leviticus chapters 19 through 20. This portion of the law is regarded as 
instructions to the holy ones. Portion, parshat, kadoshim, instruction to the holy ones. And it has been said to be one of the most important portions of the law, with most insights for the God worshiper. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, it says, To be holy for the Lord your God is holy. As we know, and surely we're all in agreement, we are called to live set apart from the world. I do hope that each of us also knows that the book of Leviticus is not our necessary go-to on how to live in such a way and how to be set apart from the world. This was Israel's way to live under the Old Covenant, an Old Covenant that with the arrival of Jesus Christ at the consummation of the age, which is the end of the age, in Hebrews 9.26 it tells us this, was growing old and was ready to vanish away. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. And it did at the destruction of the temple in AD 70, therefore rendering powerless that old covenant system. So we would not go to Leviticus chapters 19 and 20 to find the way that we should live set apart from the world. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, Jesus expressly details that he came to fulfill the jots and tittles, or what I believe to be best referred to as the old covenant details, and that not one jot or tittle would pass from the law until all was fulfilled. That's important to take notice of as we begin to explain to people why we do not believe that we are bound to the laws of Leviticus, Leviticus 19 through 20. We're not just picking and choosing what we want to believe, what applies to us, what laws to follow, and what not. But rather, through context, we arrive at a proper understanding of how these things applied, to whom they applied, and how they should be considered today. Just this week, I sat at lunch discussing biblical principles with somebody regarding Jews and Gentiles. The common division of the details that the Jews have this law and the Gentiles have grace was brought up. However, I always find it interesting that Acts chapter 15 is always left out of that conversation. And I'd like to bring your attention to Acts chapter 15 this morning. In Acts 15, we read about the council at Jerusalem. And I just want to point out what was happening was in the first century church, as these Gentiles began to come into the church, there was division in regards to, well, are we telling the Gentiles that they need to be circumcised and therefore be bound to the law of Moses? Or are we giving them some other instructions? What are we telling these people? And you would imagine if you do not give them some instructions, the Gentiles were a wicked crowd. So here they are now coming into fellowship with these people of Israel that have maintained, for the most part, their separation from these wicked evil Gentiles. So here in Acts chapter 15, in the early church, we find some ways they went about trying to create unity. Like how can we bring these despicable Gentiles into the mix of these Jews, who are just as despicable, um, how can we bring them together and not create so much division and not create so much hostility as these people are eating food with blood in it, or these people are eating animals that have been strangled. And sure enough, here in Acts chapter 15, we read their instruction, what to tell the Gentiles to stay away from. If you look at verse 19, Acts 15, verse 19, it says, Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they would abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. Some translations would say food with blood in it. So it was interesting as I had this conversation over lunch and we were talking about the different divisions for Jews and Gentiles that I brought up Acts 15 and I said, well, according to Acts 15, the Gentiles are not allowed to eat steak with blood in it. There I was, enjoying my medium rare steak. 
So do we tell people that we're not allowed to eat steak with blood in it? Is that something that many of you go around telling people that we're Gentiles, we're not allowed to eat steak with blood in it because of Acts chapter 15? Does it still stand as a command for the Gentiles or not? And that's something we must come to terms with as we read our Bible. Why is it that I can stand up here and tell you that we're not supposed to submit to the details of Leviticus 19 through 20? And I know maybe that's confusing for some of you. You say, why wouldn't we? Um, I guarantee most of us, pretty much everybody in this room, is violating something in Leviticus 19 through 20 very simply. Some, most of us, it's our clothing, is uh, made of mixed fibers, which would be completely forbidden under Jewish law. Um, also in America, we tend to think that shaving our beard makes us look cleaner. Um, according to the Hebrew law, shaving the side of your beard was forbidden as it represented your devotion to God. So... Again, there's plenty of things that we do not follow in Leviticus 19 through 20. And now I've just showed you that there's things in Acts chapter 15 that we do not follow. We do not believe that that applies to our day. Why not? That's a good question, right? Why not? Why, why do we believe we've moved past that? And obviously, those of us that are students of Scripture know that there's context to everything. The reason I'm telling you all of this is this morning I want to highlight that it's not easy to mark out what, what laws are for us. What law, what, it's not as easy to say, those were the laws for the Jews, these are the laws for the Gentiles. Rather, we must pay attention to the time, the place, the location, and the audience relevancy of each passage in order to gain a right understanding. Not only that, but as I mentioned a few weeks ago, regarding convictions of details that we find in the book of Leviticus, any, or any conviction that we have for that matter, they must be spiritually discerned. We read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you remember a couple weeks ago, I had challenged us to read through Leviticus chapter 19 with new covenant eyes and ask God to convict you of what details in that law might be spiritually applied to your life. Um, again, a good example would be uh, Israel was told that when they went out to do the harvest that they were not to take all of the crops from the harvest. So, I don't have a big garden. Many of you probably saw as you showed up here. Um, so how would I spiritually discern and apply that principle to my life? And one of the ways that I shared with you a couple weeks ago is that when I go to Starbucks and I get my whopping $5, $6 coffee, um, I usually can leave the change. And I say, hey, you know what? Use that for someone else's drink. And that's my way of not gathering all the, the, you know, the crops out of the harvest. And for me, that's a good spiritually discerned way of doing exactly what God wanted Israel to do. Care for those that are outside your normal confines, for the people that you might not know, the people that you might not see. And again, that's my way of walking worthy of that in my individual way at Starbucks. Another thing that I think is important in regards to spiritual discernment in reading the book of Leviticus is that it should be read in light of Romans chapter 14, verse 5. In Romans chapter 14, verse 5, it tells you, in talking to Christians that have already been renewed and transformed. I want to make that clear this morning. We're not just talking about anybody in the world going out to them and saying, Romans 14.5 says, let every man be convinced in his own mind of what you want to do and what you don't want to do. Obviously, you can see where that could become problematic if we were to go out to the world and say, hey, it's free. You know, the scriptures say that you could do whatever you like as, as long as uh, everything is permissible and uh, you are free to live at liberty with your own mind. Um, that could be problematic out there. That's why it's important to remember that the letters in the New Testament were written to Christians those that have already submitted to and are being transformed by the renewing of their minds. Um, so we can say, Romans 14, 5, for us, that those that are led by the Spirit of God, that yes, we must be convinced in our own mind regarding the details of sin and holiness that is found in the book of Leviticus. Some of those things for you, if you pray and you read through the text, you may say, 
Maybe God is leading me to a time where I should obey some of these things and, and move away from whatever it might be. If there's idols in your life, maybe you should search your life and say, God, what is there uh, something that is idolatrous in my walk? How can you prune this from me? And it's important because we're going to move into the Lord's table here in a moment. And that's going to be one of the foremost things that we should do to celebrate this table is to examine ourselves and ask God, give me that spiritual discernment to know what areas of sin may, may need to be pruned from my life? Or what areas do I need to further glorify you and thank you for the things that you're doing in my life? Many a times I quote what I say is my favorite Bible passage, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. The goal of our instruction is this, love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So a love, love from a pure heart, what we're talking about there is that agapeo love, that love that comes from God, what we talk about a lot of times around here is wanting for others what you want for yourself. That's that type of love, a pure love that says, I want for my brother Kevin what I want for myself, and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure he gets that, and I'm going to walk worthy of that. That's that love from a pure heart. So if that's not complicated enough, the next thing, the next part of the goal of our instruction is to maintain a good conscience. A good conscience would be a transformed mind seeking to do what is right. And then a sincere faith, which I would say is a thought out and a fruitful trust in God. Not only just believing in God, but also living it out to the extent that it's seen in your walk. A fruitful trust. So what I'd like to do for the rest of this morning's message is focus in on this good conscience aspect of that verse and how that correlates to us being holy and set apart and spiritually discerned. In Leviticus 19.14, we read this interesting law. And before the blind, you shall not place a stumbling block, and you shall fear the Lord your God, for I am the Lord. In traditional Jewish literature, this is referred to as the prohibition of, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so probably pronouncing it wrong, lifnai ivir, which means before the blind. And this has a three-pronged approach to its interpretation. It's not necessarily talking about a blind man walking down the street, don't throw a stick in front of him so that he would trip. Well, you shouldn't do that either. What this is talking about, not putting a stumbling block before the blind, is speaking about the figurative understanding of being blind. Speaking of deceiving someone who is blind, who cannot see that you're deceiving them. That's putting a stumbling block in their way. Aiding someone in the commission of a sin. Again, they're blinded by sin and you're helping them. You're putting a stumbling block in their way. And creating an environment that would encourage or lead to sin. Each of these approaches helps you become your brother's keeper if you truly examine yourself and say, am I making sure that I'm not deceiving someone who may be figuratively blind? I'm not aiding someone in the commission of sin. I'm not creating environments in my home, in my life, in my workplace, whatever it might be, that leads one to sin. Again, each one of those should have significance if we are truly loving one another. I love the fact that here at Blue Point Bible Church, we understand and value the corporate understanding of the Hebrew people. Understanding the corporate mindset and hope of ancient Israel, as shaped by being in covenant with God, helps us to see how interpersonal and interdependent the rule of God truly is. It is a sin to mislead another person, even to the extent that we do it unknowingly or unintentionally. Yes, we must internalize this because this should motivate us to take our interpersonal relationships, and our interdependence upon one another very seriously. We need each other. We need support. We need leadership. 
when leadership and support are done rightly, what we find is peace. When leadership and support are done wrongly, we see devastation. Understanding our necessary interdependence, we realize this is needed not just so that we can hold each other accountable, but also so that we can see how accountable we truly need to be. Some interesting notes about this verse in Leviticus 19.14 is when it talks about do not give. The giving, with the word in the Hebrew there, the verb for giving, is used in the context that extends beyond the physical realm. So as I've already made point here that we're not talking about necessarily the physically blind. We're talking about those that cannot see past whatever is blinding them, be it sin, whatever, most likely sin, whatever is blinding them, or ignorance. The next thing in that text is that it says, and you shall fear the Lord your God. This admonishment appears in the Torah, the rabbis note, only in connection with sins that are not public, concerning which the perpetrator can feel secure in his or her own anonymity. I didn't think I was going to say it right. Uh, The Torah therefore declares, you shall fear the Lord your God, or in more modern way, nothing is hidden from God. So when you see that command, for I am the Lord, after when you see that sentence, for I am the Lord your God, after a certain biblical command, that is challenging you to know that this command is a bit deeper than the rest. This command is one that is often violated by men thinking that they can hide it from God. Again, here, not putting a stumbling block before the blind is a matter of conscience. How can I live in a way that my conscience is not seared or damaged and not leading other people to mistrust me or to mistrust the things of God, um, that they won't find themselves in sin and maybe suffering from doubting God or whatever that sin might lead them to, the destructive thoughts that that sin might lead them to. Am Am I making sure that I'm living in a way that would not lead people that way? Again, that's something that we need to dig deep and think about because nothing is hidden from God. From the legal perspective of interpreting that verse, Leviticus 19.14, Even an intentional sinner is blind. Were he or she fully aware of the consequence of their actions, they would never sin. So obviously they're blind by the sin. We see in the New Testament a lot of thoughts about the the, uh, importance of being interdependent upon one another. We read in the book of Corinthians where it talks about where one member suffers, all suffer. Right? We are all members of the body and we must work together for the building up of each other. Obviously, we see the command all throughout the New Testament that we are to love one another as we love ourselves. So again, reminding us of not only loving ourselves, but that a love that from, from myself would pour out to other people and vice versa, that the love I share to other people would help me love myself as well. It's all a part of being whole in the body of Christ. We also see in regards to spe- about outsiders that we're responsible for outsiders as well. Not only are we responsible to be interdependent upon one another, but the scriptures remind us that we are to give the world, to give the outsiders, no reason to speak ill of us, no reason to speak ill of our God. And again, that is a matter of examining ourselves and, and making sure we're living conscientiously in a way that the world can look at us and say, I see Jesus. In our Bible study on Thursday evening, we read through Titus this past week. And I found the text to be rather interesting. And what I'd like to do is tie together a couple verses. I do believe I've mapped it out for you on the back of your bulletin. Yes. Titus 1.5, Titus 1.9, Titus 2.14, and then Titus 3.5-7. And as we were studying through this, this is something that came to my mind. In Titus 1, 
Titus is told by the Apostle Paul to ordain elders in all the area that in every city that he's planting churches. These elders would be people who are holding fast to the word, encouraging the saints in sound doctrine, and rebuking those who oppose it. Because Christ gave himself up for us, as Titus 2.14 says, that he might redeem us from sin and purify for himself a peculiar people zealous to do good works. And then as you move into Titus 3, 5 through 7, it tells us we are not saved by works, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, justified by his works, and we are heirs of eternal life. That's our role. Everything has been done. The reason why we have elders and we have a local assembly is so that we can show the world that we are heirs to eternal life. And that eternal life comes by way of introspection, self-examination, desire to grow in holiness, as the book of Leviticus should urge us to do, all the while noting that we're not bound to the Mosaic law and the details in Leviticus. But again, it should remind us that we are called to live holy. When we see the Apostle Paul say, the natural man cannot understand the things of God, that should challenge us to cleave to spiritual discernment, cleave to looking at things through the spiritual lens. And of course, all of this is going to lead us to have a good conscience. If we do these things, we examine ourselves and we seek spiritual discernment. So early on in our Bible, we see Cain offer up this challenge. Am I my brother's keeper? One rabbi noted, laws such as the edict of lifnai evir, again, what you do to the blind, with the overarching message of interpersonal responsibility, loudly proclaims, yes, as a matter of fact, you are your brother's keeper. So our conclusion this morning would be, well, the first thing I need to say is, in his series on sermon preaching through Genesis to Leviticus, Charles Simeon noted, a good sermon should humble the sinner. I ask you to be humbled this morning by learning about the need for a good conscience, love from a pure heart, and a sincere faith. So he said that it should humble the sinner, and we should be humbled. We should know that we've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. And again, as Second Peter says, that everything that makes for an effective and fruitful life, we've been given all of that. And it should humble us to know that God loved us while we were yet sinners. It should exalt the Savior. A good sermon should exalt the Savior. And prayerfully, we know the only reason we've moved over to be zealous for good work is because of the work of God in our lives. That should also humble us. And then also that promotes holiness because we're growing in line with that spirit that has humbled us, exalted the Savior, and therefore prayerfully is leading us to be effective and fruitful in our lives so that we would be able to see the fruit of what John Piper says. And I use this quote a lot and I believe in it. That God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. So again, we should be examining ourselves. We should be seeking spiritual discernment. We should be desiring to grow in holiness as our Lord is holy. I hope that I have impressed upon each of us the need for a good conscience. That which is developed by holiness from and through spiritual discernment. Even to the extent of what we do to the blind. What we do and how we affect those who are spiritually blind. What I'd like to do is begin to bring us to a close on the book of Leviticus. So as I've been reading through Leviticus and obviously coming up with some good insights that are found, I believe this is an aspect of spiritual discernment. I don't imagine that when the average person would read through Leviticus 19, pick up this law about what not to do to the blind, to not put a stumbling block, that they would begin to say, this is urging me to examine myself. 
and ask myself, if the world is blind, how am I living my life that they might see the Savior? Am I living in a way that is leading them further away or am I leading them closer to him? That should be our examination this morning as we celebrate the Lord's presence with us. And I pray that I've impressed that upon us enough that we would grow in all things pertaining to our instruction. Love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. However, I would mark out that the good conscience is a part of the fight. That's a part of the fight. The love from the pure heart is a fight too, let's be fair. But a good conscience is the real fight, is to make sure we're really living in line with the attributes of God. I'd like to pray for us before we move into our celebration of the Lord's table. Mighty God, Lord, we do thank you for your word. Your word speaks to us in ways that are beyond our understanding, Lord. We thank you for the spirit that illuminates your truth and that allows us to even begin to understand these things. For your word reminds us that the natural man does not know nor accept the things of God. It is your spirit that has allowed us to experience everything pertaining to life and godliness. Convict us of that, Lord. As we talked about the importance of not putting a stumbling block before the blind this morning, Lord, help us to examine ourselves and ask ourselves, how am I living? What am I doing to lead the way for those that are blind? How am I living in a way that allows those that may be blind to your purposes, Lord, to see you more fully? Lord, we know you will keep us, you will be with us, and you will challenge us to live in line with your word. We thank you for your grace and lift up all praise to you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.